If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Santa Ana. He'll be answering our call while living in exile in Cuba for the second time. The year is 1868, and he is 74 years old. During this call, Santa Ana is not allowed in his home country of Mexico because most people there see him as a traitor. Yet somehow this traitor served as the president of Mexico 11 times. Half the time he was voted in, and the other half he'd get fed up with the corruption, raise an army, and claim the presidency. Then, each time after achieving the highest office, he would remember that he hated politics. Sometimes he'd be the president for a couple weeks, sometimes it would be a couple years, but before long he'd end up wishing that he was back on the battlefield suppressing some rebellion somewhere, and he was out of there. Santa Ana's life was not a single battle at the Alamo. It was a complex dance of a man loving his country and wanting to serve, but possibly not having the qualities that a George Washington might have to pull the people and the states together. He could rise to the highest office over and over, but once he did, he often fumbled the ball or got bored of carrying it. Santa Ana's life might answer the question, what happens if a powerful man finds out that he doesn't want to lead when he's already in office. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and chewers of chicle everywhere, I give you Santa Ana. Hello, is that you, President Santa Ana? Who is this? Sir, your most serene highness, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. My name is Tony Bean. I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting next to each other, enjoying a Cuban cigar together. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And sir, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions because it doesn't seem that the people of our time understand how well-intentioned you were after serving as president of Mexico so many different times. But before I ask you any questions, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? Hi, this is just all so new to me. I don't know much about the future. This is extremely fascinating, but I'm glad to speak with you. I don't have any questions for you at this point, but please, I'd love to talk about my history and what I did for my country. And that's really my goal here today, is just to clear up some of the the myths, some of the stories of what you did for your country, because my goodness, I mean, the amount of time and effort, I mean, you gave your limbs and your soul to your country, and absolutely. yet I, you, you absolutely did. Did you lose one leg, or did you lose both legs? I lost one leg. I lost my left leg when the French tried to invade Mexico, 1939. Was that around the time of the pastry war? Yes, it was. It was. In the French pastry war. It's not surprising to me at all that the, that a war with the French would be named a pastry war. Could there anything, be anything more suitable than that? I want to ask you about something totally different, and I'd really like to hear about some of these stories. I heard a story 
that in the 1850s that you spent some time in New York with some businessmen trying to sell rubber to them. And this is a story that I've just recently heard about. And do you know what I'm talking about? Well, yes, I do. Yes, most definitely. This actually takes place because I was in exile from my country. In 1861, the new Mexican government under Benito Juarez, a man who seizes all of my haciendas, by the way, decrees that all external debt be suspended for two years to Britain, Spain, and France, would then send ships to Mexico to enforce a debt payment. France, however, used this as a pretext to force a change of government. The French would stay in Mexico and bring in more troops. Napoleon III decided to bring a monarch into Mexico named Archduke Ferdinand Maximiliano, as they called him here in Mexico. He was an Austrian Habsburg prince and who was misled to believe that Mexico desired an emperor. Seeing that Benito Juarez was still struggling to get Maximiliano out of Mexico, I decided to speak with Americans who were in Cuba, and they told me that there was a possibility that I could get funding to help me get back into the country. So wanting to raise money so that I would have money to have an army as I get back into Mexico, I decided to go to New York. When I get to New York, I wind up hiring a young man named John Adams as a secretary for me because he spoke English and my English was not very good at the time. So while I'm in New York, I bring with me massive amounts of chicle, which came from the trees in Mexico. Are you saying chicle? Chicle, yes. Okay. Yes. And my hope was that I'd be able to sell this and make more money so that I could take it back to Mexico to help build my army. Unfortunately, I was misled by these Americans who brought me to New York and made me spend massive amounts of the money that I did not have to try and get the support of these Americans. I was, I was unable to sell my chicle, so my young secretary, John Adams, decides and tells me, why don't I leave it here with him? Lo and behold, as the years would go forward, I hear that this young Adams boy takes my chicle, adds sugar to it, and chewing gum is born. This is what I heard. I heard that chew this was the basic, this was the invention of chewing gum. And w when you were taking the chicle there, that wasn't your intention to make chewing gum. So you were trying to sell it, but what were you, tr what was I, it? I was trying to sell it as an adhesive, as a glue, similar to a glue, to help stick things together. So what would, if something is sticky like glue, what would make them think that you could put it in your mouth? People don't put glue in their mouth as far uh, as I can I, tell. I, so what I did not mention was actually I had this habit since I was a boy, a young boy, of chewing on the chicle. And that's how Mr. Adams realized that this was a possibility by seeing me chew it all the time. So you were chewing this chicle, and chicle is something, am I right that this comes from a tree? Yes. And yes, so why did you have so much of it? Throughout my lifetime, I had the ability to have vast property holdings, especially in my home state of Veracruz, where I had many fields and land. And did you have lots of those trees? Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Oh. Okay. So then you go to New York with the 
intention to sell this. And so you, I was under the impression that you were trying to sell this for yourself. You were trying to make money, but you were trying to raise money for the government. Is that what you're saying? Raise money for the government, but really also to raise money for my army. To build an army, because we have to understand that if you have the army, you can take control of this country. I was always able to do that. I always had the true thing that always kept me in power was the army and the church. The church, because the church had money, and the army, because that was your muscle, that was your force. When you say that you, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about that, but that really was, is what determined who had the power in Mexico is who had the army. It wasn't a big, a bunch of guys sitting around at a table discussing it. It was who had the army end of story. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Well, that explains a lot because the story that we know of you in our time is you have the ability to raise a new army to take over the government about every other year. And what is it about you that makes it to where you are able to raise an army so easily or so consistently? I believe what makes me different, I always wanted to do what was best for my country. And I always led from the front. My soldiers saw that I was not afraid to stand in front to lead from the front rank and forward with my dragoons, with my Hussar de la Guardia, move forward and see what the enemy was about to do. And they knew that I was not afraid to stand and fight with them. That's why it was easy for me. It sounds like this is where your leg went, because if you're going to be on the front, you're eventually going to catch a bullet at some point. Is that how you eventually lost your leg? I, yeah, absolutely. So I lose my leg during the French pastry, where we're, we're pushing the French back, and as we are pushing them back, a cannon blast is fired, and it hits me while I'm on my horse. I do not lose my leg at that moment, but the damage is severe, very severe. On that day, I believed that I was going to die. So what did you do? So I believe that day was my last one year on Earth, and I wrote these final words so that my family and my country would know what I did for them. We were victorious. We, were, we pushed back the French. We won. Yes, we won. The Mexican arms achieved a glorious triumph here. A triumphant is the Mexican flag. I was wounded in this last effort, and it will probably be the last victory I offer my mother country. All Mexicans, forgetting my political errors, do not deny me the only title I wish to donate to my children, that of having been a good Mexican. Luckily, I do not die from this wound, but I can tell you throughout my life, it was excruciating pain for the rest of my life, leaving without my left leg. Yeah, it sounds terrible. In the, when the cannon hit you, did it kill your horse? Yes, the horse was killed. This giant 2,000-pound horse died, and somehow you survived? Yeah. Did you find yourself in a lot of situations like this throughout your time where you barely survived the battle? There were very many close calls, but this was the roughest one. It was just, I did not expect this to happen, and as I said before, I really thought that I was going to die this day. Gosh, that's incredible. Is it true, and by the way, speaking of this pastry war, 
which is just every time I say that name, it makes me laugh. But speaking of the pastry war, what was the problem with the French? I mean, what? Wh why were you fighting the French all of a sudden? So Mexico owed a debt to the French during one of our revolutions, a French establishment who was receiving many shipments coming in from Veracruz was destroyed. Its debt was taken to France, basically said that the Mexicans would not pay, so they decided to invade. Of course, their intentions were to invade Mexico and take it over. This whole thing with the pastries was just uh, a silly reason to use to invade our country and take it over. That was just a ruse so that they could find some way to go to war, for hopefully to get that land. Yes. Well, I can understand why, what would give them the thought that maybe they could come into Mexico and take it over because it seems like the whole time that you were becoming president and then you were stepping out and then you were stepping back in, it seems like that Mexico was really in a lot of trouble most of the time. I mean, it seemed like you had financial issues. It seems, seemed like you had all kinds of issues that would have made somebody from the outside look like it was weak and easy to take over. Could, is that yeah. the reason maybe why they wanted to come in? Did Mexico look like it would have been an easy target? It is such a, what people don't understand, it is such a huge amount of land. And unfortunately, we didn't realize the resources that we would later have. But it was just so difficult to maintain. And once we are independent from Spain in 1821, our leadership struggled. The people who were running our government, everyone who ran our government, were primarily soldiers. And soldiers didn't truly understand what it was to be a politician. I myself did not like being a politician. I obviously become president of Mexico 11 times in my lifetime, but I've, so far, I still want to be president again. Uh, <laughs> 11 times isn't enough? Well, you know, I'm just not happy with the way our government has been run by the liberals. Uh, Benito Juarez, he has destroyed our country, and it needs to be fixed. And I believe that I can do that again. Help fix this government. Help my country. Let's go back a minute. So when you had said that 1821 is when Mexico received or got their independence from Spain, is that what you'd said? That is correct. You joined the military at a very young age, right? Yes. Yes, very how, young. How old were you? 17 years old. Why did you want to get into the military at such a young age? My parents were... Born here in Mexico, they were of the Criollo class, which is below the Spanish, the Chupinet class. And my father wanted me to become a merchant, as he was. I struggled in traditional school setting, so my father tried to make me an apprentice with a shopkeeper to follow his footsteps. I resisted and told my father that I was not a trapero, a, a ragman, and I wanted more out of my life. Needless to say, I was not cut out to work as a shopkeeper, so I pleaded with my parents to allow me to enter the Spanish army as a cadet. I always wanted, I always was intrigued by battle and war. From the first years, I was inclined toward a glorious career at arms and felt a true vocation for army life. I gained my parents' consent and became a caballero, a gentleman, 
cadet in the 6th Infantry Regiment of Veracruz. And if it were not for my father's connections with his business handling, with the elites who managed the region, I would not have been able to gain access to this regiment. So at 17 years old, I would join the Spanish army and begin a career which would change my life forever. You said your dad was a merchant. Was your family wealthy? We were, we had money, but we weren't wealthy. We, he, as I said before, my father's connections with many of the elites, it made it seem like we were, we had money, but we were still, I would say we were upper middle class. Okay. And so that's why probably he wanted you to go on and maybe even take over the family business because he was he had lots of connections and had some influence in Mexico. Yes, absolutely. I see. Now, so then you joined the military at a very young age and you develop a reputation as a as as a warrior, as a soldier. And were you fighting right away? Were you winning Battles right away. What did that look like? So as a young cadet in the, in, in the Spanish military, we were faced smaller revolutions, Native American uprising, and we were very successful. And I was very successful in the campaigns that we had. I would eventually take part in, in one eight months after I enrolled in the army. I would see my first true major action under the command of Colonel Joaquin de Arredondo. I would consider him my, he was my mentor at the time. Arredondo had a reputation of being effective, but also cruel and hard to control. I, I, I was heavily influenced by Arredondo and his military tactics. But 1813, a revolt would take place in Texas, led by Gutierrez Magui, and they would take San Antonio de Bejar, and push for an independent Texas. Sound familiar as we go forward, as you may already know about the Texas Revolution of 1836. I was going to ask you about that eventually, but I didn't realize there was another rebellion, and you're saying this is in 1813? It's correct. That's correct. Okay. So Arredondo would be ordered to put down this revolution. I would join Coronel Arredondo on this campaign and see firsthand how to deal with rebels. So on August 18th of 1813, at the Battle of Medina, which is today, which is the bloodiest battle at the time in Texas, Arredondo wiped out the resistance, had all the prisoners executed. He would then enter San Antonio and execute those who were suspected of subversive activities or giving aid to these rebels. Arredondo's cruel tactics and commanding presence had a long-lasting effect on me, as you will see as we move into the Texas Revolution of 1836. Yeah, that's one thing that I was going to ask you, because in the Texas Revolution, when you fought at the Alamo, is that true that you executed all of the prisoners? That is true, but you have to understand something about that now. The order that we were to take no prisoners, this was a decree made by Tornel, the Tornel decree. This decree was written and said that there would be anyone taking up arms against the Republic of Mexico would be put to the sword. So I was only following the Tornel Decree. Oh, I see that you were under orders to execute anybody that held arms against Mexico. That is correct. But at the same time, Erdando, forgive me if I'm saying his name wrong, he, that's what he did, right? Yes, he did. He took no prisoners. 
the reason we're taking no prisoners is to teach these people a lesson for this revolution. We're taking up arms and killing our people, our soldiers. So they I will see. not do it again. I see. So your plan is to draw a line and say, look, if, if this is going to happen, then the results are going to be horrific. And so you better think twice before you do this again, which, of course, they Teach did do it again lesson. after Ardando. Yes. Teach I a see. lesson. It just goes to show that people don't learn, right? Absolutely. They do not learn. That's why, again, we must deal with an American-led revolution in 1836, 35, 36. Yeah. Okay. So... I want to go back to this Arredondo. When, how much time did you spend with him? At least a year. And is he somebody, obviously you learned from him, but his tactics, which you employed later, I mean, are you okay with that strategy? Are you okay with executing all the prisoners? Is that something you feel good about? One thing you have to understand, and Arredondo taught me this while we were on campaign, and I remember this as we get into the revolution of 35, 36, is that who are these men? Who are these people who are revolting, who are killing Mexican soldiers or Spanish soldiers in 1813? They are pirates, rebels. Oh. What do you do with pirates in the open seas? What would you do with them? What do we do with pirates? You tell me. Well, it doesn't seem like you negotiate with pirates. I think you no. got to kill pirates or they're going to kill you. That's what you do. You kill them. That's what these people were. In 1813, at the Battle of Medina, these were pirates. They had stolen Texas. In 1836-35, again, they steal Texas. They shed Mexican blood in 1835. And what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to sit back and let them take our country? They will continue to take more. You are absolutely right. You've got to draw the line there because the thing is, I don't know what it is, but like throughout your first presidency where Texas is trying to start its own country and then the Americans are trying to take part of your land and, of course, the Spanish, you guys had issues with them for a long time. For some reason, everybody is trying to take over Mexico. What is it that is so fantastic about Mexico that everybody wants to take it over? Well... We have a huge population. You have massive ports, much and very fertile land. There's a lot of opportunity for farming, building, establishing cities. And as we move forward in what happens with the Mexican-American War, the Americans are looking on expanding their country from sea to shining sea. And that was one of the big reasons that this war the Mexican-American War that happens in the late 1840s is pushed by President Polk, if I remember his name correctly, who, they, who quotes the term manifest destiny to take over things because God willed it for him. Well, you're not kidding either. Once the Americans started moving west, everybody believed the manifest destiny theory, and it did not, does not appear that there was any stopping the Americans, although you certainly did try, which that brings us to the second uprising in Texas. When that happened, was that before or after you were president the first time? Were you president in 33? Is that when it was, 1833? 33 is correct. Yes, I was okay. elected president in 33. 
And so once you're elected president, what was Mexico like? Did you guys have lots of money in the bank and there was no corruption? What did it look like? It was bad. As mentioned earlier, since 1821, when Augustine Iturbide becomes emperor of Mexico, he bankrupts the treasury. And that is why he's pushed out. Eventually, he's hunted down and executed. Next couple of people who come into power and become president, same problem. People, as I mentioned before, these were all military men and did not understand what it was run this country. I, I, I think that as we continue to grow, it would, we'd have good ideas and then they would spend money and just spend money. And we had, there was no way to recover. So when I become president in 1833, the treasury is shot. We are, it is a struggle. I try to raise taxes. I try to get the church to, to have them help us, but it is a rough, it is a rough road. I am not happy with it. I would step away in 1834, 35, and basically head back to my hacienda, Manga de Clavo in, 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 in Veracruz. And I, I just was not, I was not, I was meant to be in the saddle on the on campaign. And when I was stuck in the palace in Mexico City, it was just depressing because our finances were, always just terrible and it was unable to get the help from the politicians who i had much dislike my hope was to make these changes and to make things happen and build our treasury but the politicians were the problem and they held us back we were unable to build the treasury i just could not deal with it so i had to step away I let the vice president take over. I, I did not like being in the palace in Mexico City. I wanted to go back to the campaign, be on horseback, putting down revolutions, or I wanted to go home to my home in, in, in Veracruz and my house, which was a place that I was able to relax and also work my land and continue to build my my finances that were so strong in that region. So you became president, but then when you became president, you didn't want to be the president. And so you let the vice president handle everything. And I'm I can't say that I didn't want to be president, but it was never my ambition. There were multiple times before that, after the Battle of Tampico in 1829, they wanted me to become you know, president after that, I did not see that as something that I wanted because I did not see myself as a politician. And I think that is the reason why I will be in the office so many times in my lifetime because I did not seek political ambition. I wanted just the best for my country. That's why I'm in the office 11 times in my lifetime, six times elected, because I wanted the best for my country. And for people not to see that, that I, that I didn't, and I think that's what people liked about me, is that I do not want to be the politician. I did not want to make these massive changes. I just wanted what was best for the country. 
Well, and I believe that. There's, I can't imagine any other reason why somebody would become president of the country 11 times if they didn't want what's best. That makes complete sense. What's confusing is that you clearly are a man who can get things done. I mean, that is crystal clear. And yet, the things that needed to get fixed were wars of the government, meaning the corruption, meaning theft. And why not? I'm just curious why it seems like you'd be the perfect guy to jump in there and, and whip people into shape. Why not jump the, the in other, there and straighten it out? So, so the other big problem in our country was national identity. There was this struggle for states' rights federal rights, this constant struggle between the states and the federal government did not allow us to unite this nation so that we could become one. Every revolution, we kept having revolution after revolution because these states did not believe that we should have federal taxes. So we could never unite. With one of the things that I really strive for during my times in office multiple times in office, is, was trying to create this national identity. Did you know that I supported a contest to, to have a national anthem written? There was actually a verse in this song that I am mentioned in. Unfortunately, once I'm thrown into exile again, they remove that verse. But it is because of me, one of the reasons that we have a national identity. You know, as I listen to you talk about states' rights and the difficulty of uniting as one country, I mean, this sounds exactly like the, my country, the United States. It seems like we went through the exact same thing. I mean, this is what we were fighting about as well, what the states can do and what the federal government would do. And I guess what was missing is in Mexico, you all just never found the person who could pull the states together and create that national identity, which it sounds like you were trying to do. So what also hurt me as when I was president or when I was commander of the, of the Mexican military forces, again, with this problem with nationalism, you have these commanders from these state militias and these, these armies that are in different parts of Mexico, they would support their states. So not only were they revolting with just the people, but you had armies. So it made it very difficult to know who you were going to trust, especially when we got into real, a real engagement with, let's say, during the Mexican-American War. I had generals and officers who I did not know if I was going to be able to trust them when the time came. And un unfortunately, that is the case. I do have a, generals who let me down during this war also during the Texas Revolution as well. Well, I want to challenge you on that for a second. I mean, obviously, I believe what you're saying, no question about it. But it seems like what you are accusing these generals of, it seems like you did some of that on your own. When you originally were fighting in the army, you enlisted to fight for Spain against Mexico. And then later on, when it was advantageous, didn't you switch sides? You say... I, against Mexico, I have to remember, we were part of Spain. I grew up and was a soldier in the Spanish military because this was the province of Spain. These revolutionaries were traitors. Oh. The only reason 
that I will eventually break away from Spain and join the revolutionaries is one, they were not going to win. Two, I saw my opportunity for advancement. That's the only reason, the two reasons that I decide to cross sides. I war, see. The Spanish were losing. They were going to lose. The big reason they were going to lose this, all of South America is revolting because they are stuck. Spain is stuck fighting in the Napoleonic Wars with Napoleon. There's, they have no way of sending more troops from Spain, and there's no way for them to have reinforcements. So every army is turning. I commanded so many troops, and I said, eventually I saw that we were going to get no support from Spain. The revolutionaries were going to win. I saw my opportunity, and that's what I do throughout my life. I see the opportunity, see what's happening, and decide now's the time to make that move. So I see. I, that's why I do it. Don't you think that's what the, in the Mexican-American War, the generals that let you down, don't you think maybe that's what they were doing as well too? They were just being opportunistic about the direction they thought it was going to go. Maybe they thought you were going to lose. If that were the case, what did they stand to gain with the Americanos? They weren't yeah. going to get anything from them. That's a solid yeah, argument. We will see. Yeah, the Americanos weren't going to give them anything. This is the time when the Americanos were just ravaging our country. This was the time we needed to unite. I joined this confrontation really late, after the first three battles that have been lost by other generals. I am brought back into Mexico. I don't know if you know the story on how I make my return. I was basically in Cuba, the exiled, of course. They called me a traitor. They said I was stealing money from the treasury, all lies. But I'm, I'm in Cuba. Is, is an American advisor who's there. And we sit down and we are talking. And I tell him, look, so you were victorious at Palo Alto, victorious at mine, you were victorious at, in Monterrey. But again, Mexican army still fighting. This is a unpopular war. People have spoken out. Your, your, one of your senators is Abraham Lincoln. He, he speaks out against the war. It's been an unjust war against a smaller, weaker nation. I can help you end this war. Let me interrupt. So what year are we talking right now? 1847. 47, yes. Okay. And which war is taking place? Is this, which war is taking place? This is the Mexican-American War. Right. And so basically what's happening is you're not fighting in this war yet. You're in exile is what you're saying, correct? Correct. Okay, so now you're talking to the Americans, and you tell the Americans, hey, I can help you win this war? Absolutely. Okay, what happened next? So, I say, look, if you can help me get back into Mexico, Mexico City, I can end this war. So, you're offering, so advisor, to, to win, you're offering to win the war if the Americans will help you get into Mexico City. But that isn't what happened I, I, at all, was it? I am offering that. I am offering to end this war. Okay. Help them end this unpopular war. So this advisor goes back to President Polk. He tells Polk, look, Santa Ana, we spoke to him in Cuba. He says if you help them get back into Mexico, as the United States had an embargo of 
basically blocking all our ports. He says, if you get me back into Mexico, I will march to Mexico City and I will take over the government and end this war. However, I would expect payment to do this. I think I know why you wanted this payment. After they had taken advantage of you with the uh, with the chewing gum, you wanted your money back. Actually, this was before that, wasn't it? <laughs> this is before that, yes. Okay, this is, well, that's why they did that to you later. Okay, so did the Americans pay you? Yes, they did. I was paid. President Polk came forward with money. I'm not going to discuss the actual amounts. But we were given, I was given money. The embargo is opened up. I'm allowed into Mexico. I ride into Mexico City, the soldiers and the people cheering me, welcoming me back, knowing that if anyone can help our country fight these American devils, it is me. I walk into Mexico City, I have money in my pocket, and I tell the government, here is money to help build the army and fight these Americanos. So you're taking the American money to build the army in Mexico to strengthen the Mexican side in the Mexican war. So this is like worst case scenario for the Americans, right? It worked. <laughs> it's a good. It was a good. It's something I had the ability to do throughout my lifetime. I've been able to stretch story and make things appear larger and just take advantage of the situation to win. The most important thing is to win, and I would find ways to do that. That is amazing. Uh, you know, I, I, at some point I'm going to have to look up and figure out how many dollars Polk paid for this because I would love to know what that number was. I know you said you weren't going to share it. At this point, so you're saying that this was 1847. Am I right to think that at this point you have already been the president six or seven different times? Is my math right? I would probably figure around four. Around four, okay. It's hard to keep track when there's 11, you know what I mean? If a person had 11 kids, <laughs> they'd probably forget some of their kids' names. I guess mm -hmm. if you're president 11 times, it's a lot. Okay, so now let's go back. We were talking about Texas, the Alamo, and we're kind of going back in time here. This is around just after your first presidency. And the Texas is now trying to break away from Mexico. Now, that doesn't have, that's not because of the United States, or is it because of the United States? Why is Texas not wanting to be part of Mexico anymore? So the question is, why do we have a Texas revolution? Correct? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, at that point, Texas was part of Mexico, weren't they? Texas was a state in Mexico. That is correct. Texas was, okay, so why does Texas want independence? Why did they want to be their own state? So there is all this talk about freedom and rights as citizens. This Texas Revolution was not about freedom. It was about money and opportunity. Even the majority of Americanos who were here legally objected to learning Spanish, abiding by Mexican law, and becoming Roman Catholics. Make no doubt about it. With the 1824 Constitution, not in place, the loophole of not abiding by the law of 1829, which abolished slavery, was now affecting the pockets of the Americans in Texas. Slavery and the money to be made by it was being threatened, and the Texians had to stop that. 
Mexican honor demanded that Texas be returned to the republic. So this was about money, and I didn't even think that during this conversation the word slavery would come up even once. How was slavery an issue? So when the Americans decide, when we decide to let the Americans move into Texas, this was all started by Moses Austin and then his son, Stephen F. Austin, who petitioned to the Mexican government after his father petitioned the Spanish government to bring Americanos into Texas. Reason for that is we northern Texas was a rather large land. It was poorly populated by Mexicanos, and there were still very many of the Native Americans in the region who were causing much trouble for the Mexicanos living here. So we agree to help to allow these Americanos to move into Texas at very generous land grants in their abilities to, to trade in our harbors. And basically, we were the land of opportunity, not the United States at this time. It is Mexico. We are allowing these Americans to come in. We only ask, as I said before, for them to become Roman Catholics, to, become, to basically become good Mexican citizens. And what happens is we decide to overlook the fact that they want to bring in slaves. So, so many of these Americanos are bringing in slaves. And we start realizing they're beginning to make quite a good business in Texas with their slave trade. Oh, jeez. While you must understand that slavery had been outlawed in Mexico because of my dear friend, Paul, who was killed, Vicente Guerrero former president of Mexico, was actually half African descent. He freed the slaves in 1828. So we let these Americanos, we let it slide that they were going to bring in their slaves because we wanted people to help us. But what happens is, by 1833, Americans will now outnumber Mexicanos in Texas 10 to 1. So now we have an immigration problem. Does this sound familiar? We have an immigration problem Yes, where we have too many Americans moving into Texas, and we can't stop it, okay? So what are we to do? We stop the immigration. We say no more Americanos, but they keep on coming in. And the slave trade is growing. It's growing, and they're making money, which we are not seeing. So as it is about opportunity. For these Americanos, it's also about opportunity that we see as the Mexican government as not getting a piece of the action. Okay? Yeah. So, so we decide to start taxing them and stopping them from bringing in more slaves. Obviously, they are not happy with it. So what happens in 1835? They also convince the Tejanos, the Mexicanos living in Texas, to join their cause. Needless to say, I am not happy. Our country is not happy. We see these as the ultimate traitors to their country. Jose Antonio Navarro, Juan Seguin, Lorenzo de Zavala, traitors, absolute traitors, deserve to have their heads taken. So these Americanos and these Tejanos join together to overthrow our government, deciding 
that they could do a better job. They want to continue to bring in their slaves for their opportunity. And they decide to take San Antonio in Goliath and they shed Mexican blood. Mexican soldiers are killed. The government kicked out of Texas. What is our country to do? What are we to do? Well, I know what the Americans would do. The Americans would never tolerate that. What would they do? They would go take it back over. That is exactly what I decided to do. I decided to step down from the presidency and put down this revolution myself. Which is where you wanted to be anyhow, isn't it? Absolutely. I preferred being on the saddle. I said before, I preferred to put down revolution. And these Americanos did not appreciate what they were given. They took these lands, they took the opportunities that we gave them, and they decided they were going to make them their own. We could not stand for that. Santa Ana mentioned Benito Juarez several times and that he was ruining the country. Considering how many times Santa Ana stepped in and out of the presidency, though, I wonder which story was true. Was Juarez a terrible president, or was Santa Ana not capable of knowing the difference at that level of government? I mean, if he was so much better, then why didn't he stay there and make big positive changes? As a general, though, he was a star many times. When I first heard of him executing all of those prisoners at the Alamo, I thought he was a bad guy. But if we're being honest, now that I know what happened, if someone was trying to take American land like we were doing to Mexico, we would do the exact same thing. Heads would be rolling. In the next episode, you're going to hear more about the attack on the Alamo, why Santa Ana dressed up as a woman twice and then once as a monk, and why he had a parade in Mexico City for his severed leg lost in the pastry war. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe now. You won't want to miss the next episode.